Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. Today's show, we're going to talk about food, and food has been on all our minds, largely because during the pandemic, one of the great deprivations of lockdown, of staying home, was that we couldn't go to restaurants, and restaurants are culturally so important. It's where we celebrate, sometimes we romance, Sometimes things end in restaurants, but restaurants are part of the fabric of our culture and we need them and we like them. And we're going to be talking about that. Sadly, I believe many have not reopened since the pandemic and I understand and we can talk about this among the victims of being the sort of classic chef owner restaurants. On this program today, I'm, I have a co-host, Michael Holtzman, I'm going to turn it over to introduce our special guest, Michael. Thank you, Llewellyn, and uh, welcome, everyone. Um, as we're collecting uh, a damage assessment of, of the pandemic, which is still underway, mind you, you know, we're thinking about the physical uh, damage, we're thinking about the cultural damage and the psychological damage, of course. Uh, these um, waves are still rippling outward. But what's most fascinating about it is as we look back, we can also look at those that managed to innovate their way through the pandemic and not only survive it, but thrive uh, during this period. And we're very fortunate to have as a guest uh, today, Joe Wilkie, who's the president of Nelson, uh, Nielsen IQ. And they've recently awarded um, a series of recognitions to restaurants that um, showed great innovation uh, with their menus. And of course, Nielsen IQ is an industry leader. They gather uh, data and are a trusted source of retail and consumer intelligence. So they really have a finger on the pulse of what the consumer is thinking and how, that they, how they reacted to these restaurants that were navigating these shoals and eddies of, of a very complicated, unprecedented situation in the United States. So welcome, Joe. We're Thank also joined by our regular co-host, Linda Gasparello, who produced this segment. And I might add that Linda used to edit World Food and Drink Report and knows a thing or two about uh, eating out, as it were. <laughs> um, go ahead, Michael. I'm the irregular uh, co-host in that respect. Um, Joe, maybe you could start us off by telling us uh, and our viewers, how were some restaurants able to launch successful innovations uh, in 2020 while the industry overall was in a dramatic uh, decline? Yeah, well, thanks, Michael. I think um, all of the restaurants had to face four primary challenges. The first one is obvious, which is the on-premise portion of their business wasn't available. So they needed to find how to reach customers off-premise. Um, the second challenge was they were in the middle of a supply chain fiasco. And so if they wanted to innovate, it wasn't like it was a very easy time to find new ingredients or to source new equipment. So by and large, most of them had to innovate with what they had. Uh, the third thing was this pandemic really changed a lot of consumer preferences and attitudes. And so they needed to tap into those trends. If they kept acting like it was a pre-pandemic world, they were gonna miss some very important things. And then I think the fourth challenge all of them had was how to reach people. Uh, one of the traditional ways of reaching people was obviously they, they came to the restaurant. And it, without that, you may have some new item, but 
how are you going to tell people about it? Normally there'd be signage in the restaurant or something that might, you know, say I've got this new item. So those, those four things were pretty common across the entire industry. And um, it was more severe for some than for others. But as you mentioned, some were able to, despite all of those constraints, find a way to innovate and, and, and bring something new to their uh, guests. Hasn't the great innovation, the great change been takeout? Uh, the number of restaurants that never thought of packaging meals. Now it's a standard part of their operation. They package meals either for delivery or for people who come by and take them home uh, packaged. You're, you're right. That was the single biggest thing that solved this on-premise versus off-premise issue. If you think about it, some of these restaurants were well-prepared. Imagine you were a, a pizza one of the pizza you know, companies, they already had a delivery network in place, most of them. So they were well prepared for this. Or if you had a drive-through, drive-throughs also helped quite a bit. Um, but imagine that you had neither. And, and that's where what you just mentioned, Llewellyn, um, really proved important because before the pandemic, there had been put in place some things like DoorDash, Uber Eats, and these sorts of services. And it was just there for them to tap into. And the month when we had the close down in March of 2020, we saw an explosion in the downloading of those apps. And it was it more than doubled. We saw an increase in things like, you know, drive through. We saw an increase in some other things. But the real explosion is what you mentioned, is that there was this whole new way of getting that restaurant experience to come to us instead of us coming to it. Joe, um, it's interesting because we're talking on the one hand about how restaurants made innovations, but on the other hand, we're also talking about how customers made innovations, one by making these downloads that you described. What other ways did guests change in their ordering behavior from restaurants during the pandemic? Certainly there was a shift towards the desire for more comfort foods. This was a very disturbing time. And uh, Nielsen, we, we monitor this, you know, obviously both within the restaurant system, but also within the grocery stores. And we saw the same things happen in both. There was a movement back towards comfort foods, foods that we had enjoyed as we were kids. And um, several of the restaurants tapped into that shift in consumer behavior. And another big shift in consumer behavior, though, was um, there was something during that time when we realized we're all in this together, uh, this, this small world of ours, we're all in this together. And there was an increased um, sense of the, you know, the sustainability of the planet. And, and so things like plant-based food uh, grew both in the restaurants, but they, they grew in the grocery stores during that time as well. And issues like, um, you know, $15 an hour pay, let's say here in the United States, or uh, reducing food waste, we saw those go towards the top of consumers' um, agendas when they said what was important to them for restaurants. So this sort of social awareness and social responsibility, it, it really increased. And so one of the things that we saw with these menu innovations was certain restaurants tapped into those consumer changes, and that's part of why they had these enormous hits on their hands. 
And they, they basically read the zeitgeist of the time a little better than some of the others. So um, what did your research tell you about the way people are working now? One of the things that had boosted uh, restaurant uh, visits in the past has been that women were at work, they were busy. It was a lot easier to take the whole family to a restaurant than it was to come home and prepare food. Uh, what are the trends in work uh, going forward that are going to affect uh, restaurant attendance? We're seeing some movement back into uh, offices, but I think what most manufacturers and people are doing is they're treating the office less as a place to go sit and work by yourself for eight hours. And they're saying, if you're going to just sit and work by yourself, do that from home. Why not? But if you need to collaborate, if you need to brainstorm with people, if you need in-person training, okay, let's, let's use the office more for those, those sorts of things. And so I, I see most companies that we work with moving more towards a hybrid work style where um, more often people will be at home, they'll be in the office for some things, um, but that does, as you said, change things about the way people are eating at home. And one of the things that that did was, uh, you know, it, it caused more meals, obviously, to be taken at home. And that was another one of the trends that we saw was, as you said, you might have two working parents. The easy thing to do is let's just take everybody out to dinner. Well, that wasn't an option. And so we did see some of the restaurants pivot to kind of build your own family meal was uh, actually something that the Chick-fil-A introduced, recognizing that this was becoming a need, that, that you weren't just able to go out and take the whole family. And so you needed all pieces of that entire meal for your family to be able to put that together and to have that come to you. So I think that will be something that's interesting. Interesting. Michael, what, what do you, you have a question? Yeah, I was going to ask Joe, what have you seen in the data that really set apart the innovators, uh, the, the, the survivors? Um, was there a common denominator among them or were there a certain set of principles they followed that, that allowed them to uh, thrive in this situation? Yeah, let me give you a few examples um, that kind of tap into some of these trends we've talked about. Um, so Panera always had had broccoli and cheddar soup. They had always had mac and cheese. Um, but in this particular case, what they decided to do was do a mashup. And several of these innovations that we saw were mashups because, as I said, they couldn't source new ingredients. You pretty much had to work with what you had to work with. And look at, they had both of those. And also, it goes towards that trend we talked about, comfort food. What could be more comfort food than those two things? So they didn't just mash up anything. They mashed up two things that were comfort food. Uh, another one, Taco Bell, uh, known for burritos, but they also obviously have cheese uh, as one of the ingredients. And they came out with a grilled cheese burrito. Again, a mashup of two things, but again, they didn't just mash up two things. Those, what could be more of a comfort food than a grilled cheese sandwich, right? They managed to put the two of them together. But in both of those two cases that I mentioned, these were ingredients they already had. They didn't need new machinery. Um, and so they, they were able to innovate and improvise with what they had. 
But, but the smart thing about what they did was it also tapped into one of those trends that we mentioned. In, in those two cases, it was this, this need that a lot of people were feeling towards some of these comfort foods and maybe foods that they had had when they were a kid. So there's a, a little bit of a back to the future trend here with comfort food. Um, I was the editor of a food and drink paper for a long time that Llewellyn published. And we went from comfort food to uh, cuisine monster, you know, the, the lean cuisine. And it seemed that the pandemic brought on the comfort food again. The comfort food wasn't always that healthy. And so I'm wondering what your uh, research has, has shown about the way people feel about healthy food and restaurant food and post-pandemic going into the future. Yeah, and in fact, there were both, right? So there, there definitely was this desire to, to have the familiar and to be more traditional. But at the same time, as, as we mentioned earlier, we saw a fairly large increase in plant-based foods, for instance, or foods that were more healthy. So we definitely see both trends going on at the same time. You know, almost every hamburger restaurant now has a plant-based option that's increasingly moving now into the more of the chicken-based, uh, plant-based options. But we even saw many of these um, restaurants introducing, you know, plant-based milk options and things like this as they went through the pandemic. Um, and so, there's definitely both of those, and and sometimes they can be a little bit contradictory because some of the comfort foods, as you just said, sometimes they aren't the most healthy. But I think there was so much pressure and tension that people felt like they needed to, I don't know, reward themselves, you know, or do something for themselves just because there was so much craziness going on in the world. Joe, a very a brief comment and a question. One, I think hearing you and hearing about the resilience and the creativity um, of this sector is enormously encouraging because we've been through so much and there's been so much trauma um, that to hear that, you know, companies really thought their way through uh, this, this huge challenge. Can you say something uh, briefly about some of the winners of the innovation awards that you gave out? Who were they? What did they do that, that you, uh, that you decided to acknowledge them? Yes, yeah, so I've mentioned a few of them. So the Panero putting together, you know, the broccoli cheddar with uh, the mac and cheese, that was one of the winners. Um, the uh, grilled cheese burrito from Taco Bell was one of the winners. Um, and uh, another mashup was um, Little Caesars. Uh, prior to the pandemic, of course, you know, you, you've got pizzas, you've got pizza sticks. And one of the mashups that they did was they put them both into the same pizza. And half of the pizza was your normal pizza. The other half was the sticks. Uh, so again, a, a mashup. Another trend that we saw, in addition to the ones we've talked about, and this was one of our winners, um, was McDonald's Famous Orders. And I don't know if you were aware of that, but what they did was they, they went to various celebrities and they said, hey, what's your, what's your favorite McDonald's meal? And they'd tell them what their typical McDonald's meal was, and they would publicize that. And it was enormously successful. They, they said, okay, here's Kim Kardashian's meal. Here's Patrick Mahomes' meal. Here's a bunch of people that I've never heard of meal. But one of the things that was also a desire through the pandemic was we weren't getting a lot of connection. And so 
the insight here was sort of a personal connection. And many of these people are very active on social media, sometimes influencers. And it was a way to personalize uh, these meals. Again, the, the brilliance of this was they didn't have to put anything new in a McDonald's. This was just Patrick Mahomes' favorite McDonald's meal. And, and so this really drew in, especially a lot of Gen Z, because of the way they did it. They used a lot of social media. Um, it was very interactive. And I think it filled some of that need to want to connect uh, that we were missing because we were so cloistered and walled off through the pandemic. But that was also a, another very interesting thing is that some of these restaurants found new ways to connect with people um, new ways to reach them because some of the traditional ways weren't there. And, and um, can yeah. I just interrupt yeah. here? We're, yeah. we're talking about this as though it's a totally happy story. And in fact, there have been some very large number of closures, largely of individually owned restaurants, up to 60% have not reopened. And um, there also is a terrible labor shortage in the restaurant industry. Uh, yeah. how, how, do you, how do you answer those things? Uh, how are you dealing with the labor shortage? And what is going to become of all those people who once owned a restaurant, who no longer own a restaurant, and yet that is their trade, that is what they know. They're not really going to want to work at a chain restaurant, are they? Yeah, and I'm not saying that this was a good thing. <laughs> like there are many, many bad things that came from the pandemic. I think what we wanted to highlight was that in spite of all the difficulties and in spite of all the bad things that happened, there were some restaurants that managed to find their way through it and often through improvising and creativity and managed to create success in the middle of something that was otherwise pretty much a disaster, um, you know, to your point. So I, I don't mean to imply that this was a good thing because as you said, um, there's been a tremendous toll, especially on individually owned restaurants, and we're going to have to wait and see to what extent that comes back. Your rewards, they seem like a good creative fun thing that will push restaurants in a more creative direction. Are they annual or is this a one, one shot after the pandemic? You know, we've been doing this um, within consumer packaged goods, so grocery store, drugstore sorts of products for 10 years. And this was the first year that we, we've been working within the restaurant industry, but this is really the first year we did it within the restaurant industry. And the response uh, has completely floored us. Uh, been, people have loved it. And so I think it is going to become an annual event based on the response that we've gotten to it. Joe, did your research tell you anything um, about supply chain? difficulties and maybe innovation due to supply chain difficulties. I mean, such as using different ingredients than exactly. you would have otherwise. Yeah, so we didn't see as much of that within the restaurant industry as we did within the larger consumer packaged goods industry as well, in general. As you said, there were just certain ingredients that people were unable to source. So we did see a lot of product reformulation out of necessity because they couldn't get some of the things that they needed. So we, we did see that, but 
we saw more of it within the consumer packaged goods industry than within the restaurant uh, industry. And just follow up on that. Um, a lot of the restaurants that we've been talking about have got value, value meals. And I'm thinking about inflation uh, and the possibility of inflation lasting certainly for a couple of years now before we get it down again. Did you, do you have research on restaurant response uh, to inflation? Yeah, so right now they're, they're fighting that in many, many places because the inflation is not just in the ingredients and the raw material, it's also in people's salaries uh, going up. And so the biggest thing that we hear on the minds of, of restaurants at this point are, are those two things. They're trying to keep their menus affordable, but they're really in a bit of a vice with, with what's happening. So, and, and I think that same thing is true kind of across the board for most businesses right now. Um, and, you know, we're going to have to see, again, there's obviously a, a number of things that governments are trying to do now to gain some control over the inflationary cycle, but it, it is a real challenge for all of the restaurants that we talk to for how to solve that uh, math problem. Michael? Joe, I, I realize Nielsen IQ is a consumer intelligence organization and you focus on data. So I'm going to take you slightly out of your lane into the world of anecdote. And it, it seems, again, uh, to those of us that live in big cities, that that restaurants that are outside of the fast casual and fast food categories, even three, four, five star restaurants have begun to innovate in ways that have been surprising and nimble. You've seen the advent of outdoor dining and the construction, if you're in uh, any of our big cities of these outdoor uh, dining facilities, the return to classics on their menus, really reading the tea leaves about what consumers are looking for. Also, you have Jean-Georges and other you know, starred restaurants going into delivery, which they'd never done before. So do you see this, uh, this idea of innovate or die really permeating the whole of the food and restaurant sector? Yes, we do. And um, the same thing that you said with some of the high-end uh, restaurants, you know, it was a different story for them. And many of them did exactly what you said. We've seen kind of an explosion in sort of outdoor dining. I think a lot of that may stay. Uh, you see ordinances being passed in cities now to make permanent what was supposed to be temporary during COVID. People have liked that. Um, but also, yeah, some of them, they, they had to develop a sort of delivery carryout mechanism of some sort, or they weren't going to make it, they weren't going to make it through, uh, through the uh, COVID. Yeah, and a follow-up, the, the, the idea of what's going to stay, such as outdoor dining, does look like it's becoming now a permanent feature uh, of our cities. Do you see any other knock-ons from the pandemic in terms of are people, are consumers demanding no-touch food, no-touch delivery? Are there, do restaurants get competitive advantage by playing to people's fears of getting sick? We saw a little bit more of that in the beginning of the pandemic than we do now. Um, like there was, there was even more concern about going through a drive-through in the beginning of the pandemic than there is now. And so I think that has abated uh, somewhat. Um, and, and you kind of see that across the board. I, you can probably remember 
grocery delivery in the beginning of the pandemic. People might even leave the bags out for a while to, you know, or, or wash them down with Clorox wipes when they brought the bags in. You know, some of the extreme fear uh, is certainly abated over time. So um, we don't see that. I, that one I don't think is going to stay as much as, say, the outdoor dining. We see that one definitely abating. Linda, you've got a question. I do. I, so Linda always has a question. <laughs> She's done this for a while. <laughs> Joe, can you talk about automation trends in the restaurant industry? So I, I'm less familiar with that. I, I know that that is um, a, a very large area of focus. You can see fairly dramatic differences in the productivity, especially of some of the fast food restaurants. Um, and so I know there's a lot of um, focus on that in terms of operational efficiency. And there's some pretty interesting things that people are, are thinking about now going forward. I've seen some designs of, say, fast food restaurants where one was proposing maybe we just have the kitchen on the second floor so that we keep all of the first floor for you know delivery it, it makes the the footprint of the restaurant smaller so in urban areas you know maybe they can place more restaurants i think we're seeing um more innovation uh, also in in other areas but i'm i'm less familiar about what they're doing in the areas in, back in the kitchen to to automate things Obviously, labor costs are hugely important, and that has to have the chains in particular looking at how much automation they can um, put in. Uh, and you do wonder whether we will see a robot flipping hamburgers or something like that in the, in the near future. Yeah, I do think that it's just in all of their economic best interest to continue to try to find ways to automate um, and so I, I think, you know, it probably is a bit harder to do it there than say in a typical industrial assembly line, an automobile assembly line or something, but you can be sure that they are trying to see what uh, and where they can automate to help offset some of these inflationary costs. Some restaurants are using robots to come to the table and take orders. And that seems to be, I, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of that in the future. And the other thing is there are some, um, there's some trials and I think they've been very successful of hamburgers and fries being sold in vending machines. You see a lot of this in Japan. When in you Japan. go to Japan, there is so much food that is sold in vending machines. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that it is so expensive to eat at a restaurant that you get, especially the business traveler, you get used to the idea of going to the uh, to the uh, vending machine and getting all of your food. You get your miso soup, you get you know your bowl of, of rice, and you can get your whiskey too in a vending machine. I thank you all for coming along. And meanwhile, do enjoy eating. And I myself am going to an informal outdoor dinner now, so you will excuse me. Until next week, cheers all. <laughs> White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen, we are there.